you know, the number one information about the Noble Eightfold Path is that it is based on natural law and it doesn't really, you know, satisfy the ego, but it heals the ego into wholeness. Because it's a path, you know, which goes towards increasing openness of the heart-mind. In Buddhism, we speak about the heart-mind, chitta. And my name, Santa Chitta, means peaceful heart-mind. And the mind is not considered to be here, but the mind is here. And this is the brain. And the brain is considered, you know, in the Buddha's dispensation to be just like an organ, like the stomach or the lungs, or the liver, you know, an organ which can do things. In our case, you know, the brain is doing thinking and processing, but it's not considered to be that which knows. It's not considered the seat of awareness. That is here in the heart and throughout the whole being, which is actually limitless. So I wanted to bring to you today the definition of the word holy, because I find that very interesting in regards to saying, you know, that the Noble Eightfold Path heals us into wholeness. And um, the word holy is, you know, probably because in the etymological dictionary, it said it's not possible to really determine where it's originally coming from, but probably was along the lines of that which must be preserved whole or intact, that which cannot be transgressed or violated. That is what is considered whole. And it's connected with the old English word hal or hell, H-A-L, which we can find in health, or the old German word heil, which is, means something like health, happiness, or good luck. So that which must be preserved whole or intact. And somehow, you know, the chitta is always whole and intact, but we it's covered over, you know, by all of these uh, different patterns of thinking and speaking, relating. And then through the practice inside of the Noble Eightfold Path, we start to step back. We start to step outside of those patterns and become aware of them. It's like, you know, we're becoming aware that we are looking through glass, which is broken, which has all kinds of um, filters. And once we become aware of those filters, that, you know, can be a very uncomfortable process, you know, to really stay steady with that unfolding and not, you know, go under it. But it's something which can be done because of the scaffolding of the teaching. And the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path is one kind of scaffolding, which is very pragmatic because of the very uh, sophisticated, you know, meditation teachings which the Buddha has left for us. And, you know, the teaching stems from Iron Age India and it has been developed inside of that culture. And it's, you know, really good to be aware of that as we are receiving the teaching and using it. It hasn't, you know, come about in a vacuum. But once we know, you know, where it's coming from, we can uh, make that part and parcel of how we are picking up the teaching. And, uh, you know, it has been compared to an ancient path which has been rediscovered by the Buddha. So it wasn't the Buddha's invention, but he rediscovered it. And there's a beautiful definition of that in the scriptures, which I'd like to read to you today. It is in the Samyutta Nikaya, the Connected Discourses, and it's called The City. So please, you know, settle in and just uh, allow that to wash over you. It's written in the old language, <coughs> and it's translated by Venopiku Bodhi. The City. Suppose monastics, a person wandering through a forest would see an ancient path, an ancient road traveled upon by people in the past. They would follow it and see an ancient city, an ancient capital 
that had been inhabited by people in the past, with parks, groves, ponds, and ramparts, a delightful place. Then the person would inform the king or a royal minister, Sire, know that while wandering through the forest, I saw an ancient path, an ancient road, traveled upon by people in the past. I followed it and saw an ancient city, an ancient capital that had been inhabited by people in the past with parks, groves, ponds, and ramparts, a delightful place. Renovate that city, sire. Then the king or the royal minister would renovate the city, and sometime later, that city would become successful and prosperous, well-populated, filled with people, attained to growth and expansion. So to monastics, I saw the ancient path, the ancient road traveled by the perfectly enlightened ones of the past. And what is that ancient path, that ancient road? It is just this noble eightfold path that is right or wise view, intention, speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, and stability. I followed that path and by doing so, I have directly known suffering, its origin, its cessation, and the way leading to its cessation. Having directly known them, I have explained them to the bhikkhus, the bhikkhunis, the male followers and the female followers. This holy life, monastics, has become successful and prosperous, extended, popular, widespread, well-proclaimed among the devas and humans. Devas are the, you know, the celestial beings. So that's that, uh, you know, scriptural way of bringing it home that this is something which exists since a very, very long time. It has been, you know, picked up by the Buddhas who were before Godama Buddha. And it has, you know, it can be laid open again, just like our own capacity, you know, for awakening. It's, it is there, but it's covered over. Like, you know, the sun is covered over by the clouds. And then if we are becoming conscious of those clouds and uh, see them for what they really are, that they are only clouds, they are impermanent. If we can do that through the scaffolding of the teaching, through the Noble Eightfold Path, then, you know, those filters, those clouds are thinning out slowly but surely. And that's, you know, what we can do. And uh, because as human beings, you know, we have this amazing ability to be able to step back in a balanced way and acknowledge what we are experiencing in the moment with a kind of with a kind heart, with a kind awareness, and then we can make a choice. You know, and this is something which we need to really become confident in through training ourselves. Like any other skill, you know, driving a car, playing an instrument, we can't just do it if we are, somebody shows it to us one time. We need to train ourselves in it and then we slowly, you know, become confident in it. And that's a process. And sometimes, you know, we lose heart because we, we just don't have that confidence if what is experienced is really very, very, very painful. And I really know that from my own life. You know, that's a reason why I took the monastic form because I felt that that was really helpful, you know, to not veer off too far. But actually, since I've taken the monastic form, it's still not an easy path. It's still not easy sometimes when, you know, these old patterns are triggered, the old trauma, you know, which is locked into the body somewhere gets triggered and then you know, great uh, confusion and great suffering, you know, can, can become, you know, can, can become triggered and then there's great discomfort. 
And the important then to, to hold steady with that and not go under. That's why we need this path. And, you know, if we are looking at the evolution of consciousness or the evolution of life on this planet, when we are looking at it, we do that with consciousness. We, with consciousness, we're looking at, you know, what it is to live and to have a body and so on and so forth. And the Buddhist teaching helps us to expand that consciousness through increasing capacity for awareness and mindfulness. You know, in the beginning, it's all just about me, 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 and survival when I'm very tiny, not even... You know, not even being aware that we are separate, that we are not the same body as the body of our mother. And then the circle of awareness, you know, gets bigger and bigger. And then usually it starts to stop at the cultural narrative. And with this practice, you know, we want to step outside of that. And, you know, that's what brings us all together here in these uh, meetings is that we all have that, we all feel that calling, you know, we want to step outside of the confinements of conventional reality because we see its shortcomings. And we want to have, you know, the capacity to step out of the box and then, you know, look at the box. And then for some time, we stay at that place and then we step out of that box again into a bigger box. And that's, you know, the walls of the box always give way. And then there is a bigger space, consciousness expands. And then again and again, you know, until there's no walls. That would be full awakening. And this is a, a process which we have the capacity to cultivate. And now, you know, as we are standing on this evolutionary threshold, noticing that if we don't seriously, you know, change our ways, how we live on this planet, we will go extinct as a species because we live beyond our means. And that's a, a very powerful recognition. You know, and I think all of us who meet here, we are all on that uh, threshold in some way or another. We all feel that urge to evolve. And that's a really great good fortune, even if if it's confusing, you know, and uncomfortable. Because, you know, the hallmark of the Buddha's uh, teaching is how do I deal with this? How do I relate to this? It's all about relationship. So, for example, you know, noticing the limitations of the narrative and that the narrative has to change, that's something, that's an experience, really. And what we need to do is, is to know how we are relating to that experience. The experience is always like secondary, but what is really within our reach is how we are relating to the experience. We can't single-handedly, you know, change the narrative, the cultural narrative, but we can know that we are no longer fully lost in it, that we can see some of the limitations and that we even can sense, you know, some of the potential, which is, outside of that narrative. And that's something to really notice in ourselves. And then relating to that with mindfulness and awareness within the scaffolding of the Noble Eightfold Path. So that is the training which we can do, and which many have done before us. But, you know, till a short time ago, the transmission of Buddhism was a lot about, you know, personal transformation and it wasn't so much about, you know, a narrative or society and so on and so forth. And now it becomes more and more clear to us that 
we need to relate our own transformation also to the collective and to the epigenetic material. You know, we have inherited the ancestral and collective trauma information, which is part and parcel of our heritance. So really, you know, on the one hand, you know, sensing that that brings up a lot of kind of maybe confusion and also a sense of, no, you know, I don't want to have to deal with all of that. And I think we don't have to deal with it like on a personal level, but we just need to notice our relationship to that information, you know, which starts to really, I think, press in on us, you know, all of the unfinished business. We can see, you know, what's happening in the Middle East. We can see this is not like a recent occurrence, but we can see that it has been building up over a very long time of things have not been attended to. And the same, you know, with the climate crisis, Everything, you know, which is hitting us is, has been built up for a very, very long time. Like, you know, landfill having been stuffed away somewhere. And then at one point, there's no more space for that. It just doesn't go away. And I think that's something which becomes more clear now to more people. And that is yeah, a sign of evolution. That's a sign of the expansion of consciousness, of stepping outside from the former box into a bigger box and looking at the confinements of the previous box and seeing we can't really go hiding in that box any longer. And that's scary on one level, but on the other level, it is also this is how growth happens. You know, there's always a stretch. And a stretch is experienced as discomfort. And that is often then, you know, experienced as fear. And I can see that very much in my own experience. But then, you know, not allowing that experience to take charge of us. That is the choice we do have. Not believing our thoughts. Because what we usually believe is, you know, I am on my own and I have to kind of deal with all of this. And this is not true, you know. We are not on our own. And it's not like our sole responsibility. And I think this is the most uh, kind of common assumption we fall into if we are triggered in this way. Regressing, you know, in an earlier trauma, you know, where we have been probably experiencing a sense of abandonment because every one of us has had that at one point. Even we might have had a very great upbringing, but, you know, 100% attunement to an infant is probably impossible. So, you know, to really being able to settle with that experience of helplessness and hopelessness if there's so much being revealed to us that is hard to work with but it's also important to pay attention to the support we do have we have the teaching. There's many different teachings out there. The Buddha's teaching is one amongst many, and it really works well. And then we have the health and the means, you know, to come to this gathering on a Wednesday morning. That also means a lot that we can do that. We have Sangha. So it's really, I think it's so important to pay attention to what is already available in our life so that we even can come to that threshold and, you know, and experience it consciously. So that brings in a sense of, I think, gratitude and 
a sense of buoyancy, which we really dearly need because buoyancy, you know, opens up the mind and, and creates some space because that's what we need. Space is so important for digesting experience. And gratitude, even, you know, if it doesn't come easy, but make that a practice to really pay attention to what is available rather than only paying attention to that which is difficult, which is a tendency we have. And it's even, you know, an evolutionary um, skill we have. It's a survivor skill. But in order you know, to, to grow beyond survival in, in the bodily sense of, you know, becoming or like having a certain age, if we want to go beyond that, if we want to cultivate wisdom and compassion, not just survival, we need to expand our consciousness further than just surviving as a body for a certain amount of years. And that's, you know, what the Noble Eightfold Path is all about. To expand consciousness beyond the immediate survival of the body. So now just coming back to the body itself now. And then taking in our experience, the somatic experience of, of sitting here and uh, meeting as a group and hearing these words. You know, and noticing that life is already doing it. Life is already evolving. That's what it always has done. To really become conscious of that and that we can participate in that wisdom, in that intelligence more consciously, that's something, you know, which is... Uh, coming online now at this point in history for more and more people. As we are faced with this amazing complexity of so much unfinished business. And we're starting to realize the repetition compulsion of that. not just on an individual level, but also on an ancestral and collective level. And, you know, our own capacity to respond to that can be expanded if that's, you know, what we feel called to do, you know, for the benefit of future generations. And also, you know, for the benefit of our own peace of mind. So awareness and mindfulness together with, with joy and gratitude, those two, they can really open up the path into increasing freedom from that repetition compulsion of the past. And then past becomes history. 
And history is a pool of learning. We can stand on that. But not, you know, mindlessly repeating, repeating and repeating it. And, you know, deepening the trauma patterns, the karma. And that's, you know, what the Noble Eightfold Path as a scaffolding can help us is to cultivate this capacity for choice. And, you know, this capacity for choice, you know, by looking at our experience rather than losing ourselves in it always resides in uh, letting go. Letting go of a filter, which previously, you know, we were under and then it dissolves. Through us, you know, seeing clearly the conditionality of that filter. Like an old trauma, you know, which we haven't had the capacity yet to metabolize. And then once it is metabolized, the filter is gone. And then, you know, the next filter becomes conscious and it's a graduated path. But the you know, central uh, feature of that progression of insight is the seeing of impermanence. And then, you know, the seeing of impermanence leads to letting go via, you know, the washing away of these filters of craving. until they were gone. You know, sensing the, the body on the cushion, on the chair, and the movement of the breathing process. And the aliveness of the body. And some you know, areas of the body might be less alive than others, but just noticing that. And with the out you know, we can just send down roots into the ground below our seat you know noticing that this body and this planet are one process through eating and drinking going to the bathroom crying, sweating, 
and breathing. We are in constant exchange with the biosphere. We never ever cut the umbilical cord. And through this body, we are directly fully networked in with the biosphere of the planet. And that's something we so easily forget. That's really important at this day and age to make a real strong connection with that truth. You know, to pay the same attention to embodiment as we are paying to transcendence. Bringing that teaching into the present moment where our culture seems to have lost the capacity for conscious embodiment more and more. And it has grave repercussions. And it seems, you know, for us uh, to really work with conscious embodiment, there's a sense of dis-ease and discomfort, which uh, keeps us uh, in the old patterns. But once we start, you know, taking an interest in that, it, it opens up. There's a kind of a wordless uh, transmission, a wordless communication which starts to be established between our individual bodies and this much larger body of the biosphere, which is our true body. That it can give a sense of awe and possibility, because that body has a self-regulating intelligence which is operating since over 4 billion years. And we can actually participate in that intelligence if we choose to do that training. You know, the training of again and again, putting down those perceived limitations and stepping outside of that small box and then, you know, that is an opening towards this much vaster intelligence, which isn't, has nothing to do with the brain. The brain is good for, you know, going to buy a, a ticket or something, but that is not what the brain does. The brain cannot embrace that vast mystery. And it's not supposed to. And that vast mystery can speak to us in a wordless way, on a 
level of uh, receptivity, which is more on a vibrational level. It's like the whole body listening, the whole body being an organ of listening through the fact that it is built from the same elements as the biosphere is. There's this rapport possible. We have a direct line into that. You know, as this kind of listening is happening, we can notice, you know, the expansiveness of the mind, the chitta. The vibrancy of that expanse, the aliveness. Yeah, feeling that amazing uh, rapport, you know, between the body as a biocomputer, you know, we have inherited from our ancestors and the, the richness, you know, of the aliveness we can connect with through the body. which is, you know, much more than just a, it's not a personal body. So we are part of this whole lineage of, uh, you know, life, how it has evolved on this planet since a very long time. Been handed down from generation to generation. Like a river. And they're really sensing that vibrancy. And the, you know, the fact that this is not going to stop here, there's more innovation, more creativity waiting to be embodied as we are standing on this threshold, you know, confronted with so much unfinished business. expanding consciousness beyond that.
We're making space for a future potential to emerge. And, you know, through sensing into that vibrancy, that's a way of like opening to this uh, information, you know, to become available to, through us. In our particular unique way, you know, we all have different gifts, different talents, and we all can tune in in a different way to this wordless vibrancy. And resonating, attuning to that. And you know, making ourselves available. But simply, you know, I'm listening, I'm here. You know, as a community, inviting that uh, creativity to speak through us individually and collectively. This is, you know, what evolution looks like, really, by seeing the need and sensing that urge in ourselves, that urge to evolve. And, you know, using this ancient teaching as a, as a anchor to keep us in the middle, to not falling for extremes of permanence. And keeping, you know, keeping in the middle of the flow, being carried by that flow and swimming in the way we can swim. You know, so to align with uh, the highest potential we can embody. In service, you know, for those who come after us and in, our, in service of our own growth. that belongs together. You know, to be more informed by innovation and creativity and not stuck in repeating the past and repeating the past and repeating the past just because it has worked you know in the past it doesn't mean it's it's appropriate for what's happening now and you know the birthplace of that skill is in the present moment by seeing you know is there clinging or is there an openness Are we listening, you know, with our full being, our body and our mind? 
to this vibrancy of that which is not yet manifest. That is the essence of impermanence, really. See, you know, that even the narrative within which we are practicing is impermanent. Even, you know, the packaging in which the teaching has been handed down to us is impermanent. It needs to be also looked at. Then I'm inviting the blessings of our ancestors and of the future generations so that we can live up to this urge to evolve, to remember it, you know, when we feel really fearful and hopeless. And that's another reason why we have these meetings, I think, to encourage each other by showing up and uh, reflecting back that urge to evolve, which brings us here. not just in order to get away from something, but much more in order to see and understand. And expand and grow. for our own benefit and uh, for the benefit of all sentient beings. And, uh, you know, before I'm ending the meditation in a few minutes, I'd just like to end with the Noble Eightfold Path Mantra. I'm going to chant it three times. Just uh, allow it to rain down on you. Samaditi Samasankapa Samawacha Samakamanta Samma Achiva, Samma Vayama, Samma Sati, Samma Samadhi, Samma Ditti, Samma Sankapa, Samma Vacha, Samma Kamanta, Samma Achiva, Samma Vayama, Samma Sati Samma Samadhi Samma Ditti Samma Sankapa Samma Vacha Samma Kamanta Samma Achiva Samma Vayama Samma Sati Samma Samadhi Just, you know, noticing the vibration, you know, how easy 
we can sense, you know, through that somatic bodily sense of tuning in. This is a very, very sophisticated uh, way of receiving information. It's beyond language, but it has depths to it. You know, at a time where the complexity is sheer overwhelming, we need to also develop different capacities of attunement. And how we can receive information, you know, entering our form in this very different way, not just through the thinking mind. That's what's needed at this point to extend these uh, capacities of ours by being able to communicate with different forms of intelligence. which are beyond the human intelligence and being tuning into the modern human world. you're slowly opening your eyes just trying to keep you know connected with this inner sense of embodiment thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and dharma seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate